Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Scott Gray, aka Chapter from Melon Bomb, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast hosted by me, the Managing Editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. Thanks so much for joining us today. We at House Culture are over the moon to be able to bring a little bit of the club directly into your home or wherever else you might be listening to this. If this is the first time you've tuned into the podcast, first of all, welcome And second of all, please make sure you have a dig through our back catalogue of episodes which feature interviews with the likes of Fatboy Slim, Tall Paul, Brandon Block, Greg Wilson, Terry Farley, John Satrencher and many more. Even if you don't recognise the name, I guarantee you they have a fascinating story to tell. And if you've only just stumbled across House Culture and want to get to know us a little better, as I always say, we are a collective of house music fans who have come together through our mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Instagram is where the party happens and you can find us there at housecultureNet. Follow that and you'll get a daily dose of all things related to this scene we know and love. Let's get on with this next episode, shall we? In this one, we chat to the multi-talented Melon Bomber, Scott Gray. Not only is he part of the Melon Bomb DJ crew who have been entertaining the coolest of crowds in Ibiza for the past few years now, the resident of the island also produces and sells tasty artwork that has a distinctly Balearic flavour under his pseudonym Chapter. As you're here, we chat about his first visit to the island he now calls home 
come on, we're going to Ibiza. And they dragged me out there in 97. And I remember going thinking, it's been done now. And it just absolutely blew my mind. Dancing in manumission while the sun was coming up and then going to space afterwards. Just incredible. What prompted the decision for Scott and his wife to make the permanent move to the White Isle? I woke up with a cold sweat one morning and just said to my wife, I've got to give up work. I've had enough, it's killing me. And she suggested trying a summer in Ibiza. So I quit my job, bought a van. Didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I'd buy a van and take it to Ibiza. I can earn with it. I went over there and it worked out all right. How the first meeting with his fellow Melon Bomb crew went? I've got a meeting with Paul Reynolds and Ben Santiago about this really good idea and I've got no idea what it's going to be. And where the name for their collective came from? That's great. Uh, so what should we call it? Melon Head? Melon Disco? Melon, uh, Melon Bomb? Before we get started, I must say that this conversation was recorded before anyone had even heard of this thing called the coronavirus. So there is some chat about dates and whatnot in here. Obviously, these are either not happening or TBC. So please check the current situation if you hear about something you like. This is going to be a good one. Prepare to get jealous and start packing those bags for your move to Ibiza. This is Scott Gray. House Culture. Hi, Scott. Uh, we at House Culture are so happy to sit down with you for the House Culture podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, you're part of the award-winning Melon Bomb Collective that has been setting Ibiza alight for the past few years with an explosive mix of house and disco, playing at Glitterbox Pasha Pikes. But before we come on to talk about all of that and obviously your artwork as aka Chapter, what we want to know is what was your first exposure to house music? Wow. My first exposure to house music. Well, I guess um, it would have been 1988 when I was a, a massive hip hop head, I suppose. Um, but there was house music sort of seeped into the into the into popular culture in a way, didn't it? There was a couple of tracks that came out, "Love Can't Turn Around," stuff like yeah. that. Um, and it was just, I suppose, it was a, f- a, a faster version of the the electro kind of scene that we were into. So it, it kind of it kind of came in that way. But I was never properly into house music as such until probably 1990 when I took my first pill. <laughs> and uh, where was that then? It was actually <laughs> with my brother and some mates on a pub crawl, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, and my brother thought it would be a good idea to, to, for us to take these and we just, we, we loved it. Oh, older brother then? My younger brother actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, my, my brother's four years younger than me, but was, was a bit more advanced than me when it came to uh, uh, illicit substances. Yeah. So he... Um, he got us all on these pills and we had a great night and then the next thing to do was which was probably a month or two later was to actually go to a club and experience that yeah. uh, and we did and then all of a sudden house music made total sense <laughs> of course it did yeah <laughs> so what was that was it just the the combination of the music the people the vibe all together or was yeah. there one thing in particular well, well I, I, I mean I'd been to the odd rave before but I hadn't like a few couple of illegal ones but I hadn't taken anything uh, I, I, you know, for, for whatever reason, I, I, I maybe I had a spliff instead, but I, I didn't think pills were for me at that point. I so I'd have been eighteen, nineteen then, uh, and then when we went to Club UK was my, f- I think it was my first proper experience with combining the house music with the with MDMA or, or ecstasy, and it was everything. When it? it was just a, yeah. everybody was on the same vibe. There was so much love in the air. It was just like it was a bit like a religious experience, I guess. Yeah, and so were you hearing these tracks and were like, I want to. I want to own this music and uh, become a DJ or was it just something just to do for... At that point, I was just happy to dance my ass off to it and put my hands in the air and uh, and enjoy it. No, I don't think I had any intention of DJing at that point. That came a little bit later. 
and I don't even know if I can pin that down to a, to a particular point. Probably a couple of years later, and a, a friend of mine, um, I had DJ friends actually, yeah, I'm thinking about it now, one of which was Paul Jackson, who went on to do some really good things uh, with, with Underwater, with Darren Emerson mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. And he he, he was quite successful for, for quite a while actually. And we, we'd, we'd follow him around. To, he was one of the original Ministry of Sound DJs. Yeah. So we'd go and watch him play there. Um, and I guess, yeah, and I suppose... We all kind of bought records anyway to listen to them at home. And then I think one of, another one of my friends got some decks at home, my friend Martin actually, and we'd go around his house and play the records and try and, try and mix. And then roll on a few more le- a few more years, uh, some friends of mine were doing a little event at a bar in Notting Hill called, ooh, I can't remember the name of the bar now, it'll come back to me later. Um, and and they, they asked me to come along with my record collection. And at that point, I was just playing funk and soul, really. Mm. Even though I liked house music, I, I, I thought I'd uh, play that kind of sound instead. Yeah. Uh, and that was kind of my first steps into DJing. Yeah, and to have kind of a basis, I think, sometimes in that funk and soul sound, and even with hip-hop as well, like yeah. this, that sampling culture, especially with house music, you kind of discover where a lot of these tracks have been kind of born from. 100%, yeah. I mean, it's all about, it's all about the sampling. Even now, when, when we're making tracks now, you know, we we love we love the sampling side of it, especially yeah. as none of us are in, in the Melbourne musicians. So if we're making stuff, we tend to be using other people's stuff and uh, changing it a bit. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned Ministry of Sound as well. Was that kind of a, did that figure in your kind of clubbing life early early doors? Or? Yeah, yeah. As I say, we'd, we'd go and see Paul play there and, and plenty of other nights as well. So yeah, we love we love the ministry and the cross was a was a massive part oh, of I used our. I love the cross. Yeah, so we, uh, so many of these we've done, and lots of people mention the cross, and I think yeah. just my reaction every time is I used to love the cross. If you're a Londoner and you're into house music in that era, the cross was mm-hmm. was like the mecca. And, and actually, yeah. I, I was talking to some friends a couple of days ago about how things are going in Ibiza, and we were talking about pikes, and the cross and the pikes. There's kind of similarities yeah. to it, aren't there? Yeah. You know, it's that kind of small like environment, yeah. low ceiling, sweaty. Um, but just eclectic dark is, I don't know if they're the right words, but you, you know what I mean? It's that kind of Yeah, it's like a throng, like everyone's mm. in there together. Yeah, it's like, have you been back to that area of King's Cross Do you know what? since the regeneration? No, I, I haven't, but I've seen the odd, I haven't, uh, yeah, maybe a couple of years ago, but I haven't, I haven't gone back to the site where the cross is, mm. but I'm sure somebody showed me an image of it recently and it's still unused, so it could still have been a nightclub. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely this now it sells like high-end furniture. Oh, it does? Ways. Oh, yeah. it, okay, fair yeah. enough. And where the DJ booth used to be, they've knocked out the back wall. Oh, really? And so it's open, there's a canal back there, which I never knew. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. It's kind of weird. You kind of stood there and you can kind of squint and see but yeah it's uh those those days are long gone there was a night there called cheeky people that, mm. that was one of the first nights i had in there on, and that was a monthly on a saturday and again paul jackson used to play at that so we'd go and watch him and we just had we still talk about those nights now some yeah of the, some of the times i had in there and what was the kind of genre of music during that era was it kind of I mean, what year what years for this would you say it was uh it was the i guess it would have been nine uh, maybe yeah. around that kind of era um, and it was the kind of it was a mixture between sort of funky house it was quite big what they call funky house then and a kind of mixture of that and a, and a slightly sort of tougher sound I suppose was what was, was the music we were kind of following in uh, places like The Cross and uh, The End and we would have used to go other places like that and even Trade we used to go to sometimes to see mm-hmm. Tony DeVitt play and people like that so yeah yeah, uh, yeah it was that kind of it had a soulful edge to it I guess mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of my my love of that sort of more soulful sound in house 
um, probably came from that, that sort yeah. of era. Yeah, and it's the bomb. Like Do you remember the bomb when that first came out? Uh, the, f- the first place Bucketheads. I heard, yeah, Buckyheads. Yeah, and yeah. the first place we heard that was obviously Kenny Dope. The first place we heard that was in the cross, uh, and it just blew our minds. It was yeah. just incredible. Yeah, this when we were all off our heads. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just what is this? And um, so, what was your first experience with Ibiza? Was um, were you like, okay, this is the mecca? Is Ibiza? I need to get there, or did you just discover it? Yeah, the, the Mecca is Ibiza uh, and was becoming Ibiza, you know, from the, obviously the whole scene was born there with the, with the, with the famous four that came back and, and brought that whole acid sound and the drugs and everything to, to London. Um, but I never got there till 97. And, and the reason for that is I had a child when I was 21 mm. um, and my mates were going on these kind of boys holidays where I was stuck at home <laughs> with doing the family bit. But in 97... Me and my me and my son's mother at the time we, we parted ways, um, and the boys to sort of try and cheer me up to come on. We're going to Ibiza. They'd all been going for a couple of years, and I've been going on about how great it was. Mm. Uh, and they dragged me out there in '97, and I remember going thinking, oh, "I've missed it. I've missed the boat. You know, it's it's the whole scene is it's been done now. It's yeah. you know, it's nothing new about it now." Um, and it just absolutely blew my mind. It just as as they told me it would, you know, dancing in manumission while the sun was coming up yeah and then going to space afterwards yeah it was just just unheard it was just incredible yeah i mean it's nuts how like you say you got there it'd been going almost like 10 years i suppose mm. and yeah you're thinking oh it's over i've missed it yeah. you experienced that and even now you know 30 years later it's still still going still reinventing itself and you've guys have had a part in that I suppose. well it, it, it is still doing that and it's still having that effect on people and even now you know people you got a lot of people sort of saying, "Oh, Ibiza's over. It's dead. The scene's dead." They keep, you know, you hear that every year, and it's not. It's still very much alive and kicking. All the best DJs in the world go there. Mm. It's still the mecca of house music, um, and even though there's a lot of not not brilliant music going on there, there's still a lot of brilliant music going on there, yeah. and brilliant DJs and very creative people still go there. Um, we ha- so we got some friends that had their their son came over with a load of his friends for the first time, and they were all what. 20 year old 21 year olds yeah and just we spent some time with them not necessarily at the clubs but just you know we had dinner with them a couple of times and went around their houses and and they were just they had that same wide-eyed expression that sort of they they couldn't believe what they were witnessing it, it blew their minds too yeah and that's you know that's sort of 30 years later after yeah. the scene had started it's still having that effect on people when they go for the first time and it's never too late to go to be there uh, and, and experience that it seems no which is and, great yeah even you know you think kind of kids or you know older kids would go with their parents and if their parents have been going to this thing going on about it the kids would just kind of push against that and yeah. be like actually it's what my dad does it's not cool but it's you got it it's, it's still got that cachet it's still incredible and pushing on forward it does it does seem a little strange though, doesn't it that that, that that generation wants to do what we did because we never wanted to do our mum and dad. no I, I don't know what it is it's I, I don't know whether it's um in my mind, I was thinking like things like the, the 90s or whatever almost seems like the 60s in a yeah, way. Yeah. And that that era of music in the 60s kind of like di- di- like did its thing and then died a death, whereas this has never gone away. Yeah. And it's just it's just continuing to move forward. To so the point where my son himself, he, he says he never had his punk house or hip hop moment. Like we, we in our, yeah. in our I mean, obviously yeah. punk was a generation above us a bit, but we'd certainly had like a hip hop movement change our lives, the house movement changed our lives um, and they've never had that kind of 
absolute rock and roll movement that we that we had. You know, we had a, we had a few of them in our generation. Yeah, really, and they haven't had that. And it's it's a strange thing. I don't know what the reason for that is. I hope the next generation discover something new for themselves. But having said that, you, you hit a point hit on a point there where you said about the sixties. I remember when you know the whole summer of love kind of thing came out, and we were all taking LSD and mushrooms and pills and what we were doing. And Spliff, we were very much referencing the 60s, weren't yeah, we? Yeah. With the art and the culture and yep. stuff like that. So we were kind of looking back to that era yeah. in a way. So I suppose there is an element of that. But as you say, but then that died and came out. And yeah. Weird. I don't know. don't know. Strange. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting... So like in a hundred years time, they look back on this and be like, are the house music still going? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or or yeah. what happened? how did this kind of push on exist? Half of me hopes that it's still going. <laughs> Half of me hopes that the kids... Find something new, you know, they can, that they can claim for yeah, themselves. Yeah. You know, you've got grime and stuff like that, I suppose. But, you know, it feels to me like it's just a, another version of hip-hop, whatever. Yeah. Perhaps the kids would, dis- would disagree with me. It's, yeah, a lot of things, everything's kind of fragmented in a way now that um, if you f- if you have a niche, you can find your niche, but you can find it kind of online, I suppose. Yeah. Whereas, like, yeah, it was all kind of a, a real community when house music blew up in Summer of Love, you know, it's one-to-one and... It was never that international, apart from in Ibiza. Yeah, if you know what I mean. It, we, I think we definitely packaged it and took it back to Ibiza and made it what it is today. Yeah, the Brits, you know, absolutely. And didn't you meet your wife on the dance floor? Of yeah. The- <laughs> so that year in '97, when my friends dragged me out there, kicking and screaming mm. against my will, um, it wasn't quite like that. But they did have to. Uh, they kind of said, "No, you're coming." You know, and I'm like, "Okay." So thank, I'm just very, very thankful, from, obviously, for that, because it totally changed my life in a way that's... Uh, multiple ways. Yeah, multiple ways. Um, so, yeah, we, we were there. Um, we went to space, and I bumped into my wife, as she is now, yeah. No way. Did you know, you, did you know each other beforehand, or were you just... Um... No. We, I'd seen her at the airport. Yeah. Um, with a, she, was, she was traveling with a friend of mine, Dave, who's now become a really good mate of mine. I used to go watch West Ham with him for years after that, until I moved to Ibiza. Um, and I was with all my mates, and we were all typical boys abroad you know in our, in our mid-twenties late twenties just getting up to all sorts of nonsense and then she came up to me in Pasha on the Wednesday night the, the night we arrived there and said something to me but I was so off my face I couldn't <laughs> even speak I just, <laughs> so she she went away probably a bit disheartened <laughs> but then we but then I saw her again in space and we got chatting and, and actually yeah. she uh, came up to me and she said to me um have you farted I said no <laughs> She said, "What? Never. That's the girl for me." Oh, there you go. <laughs> that, was a, that was our chat-up line, yeah. And Brilliant. so we've been together ever since. Then we got married a couple of years later, and uh, incredible. And then, and then yeah, and then we, we'd go on holiday there every year. Yeah, you know, every summer we'd go there for a couple of weeks. Sometimes we'd go twice. And then in 2010, I was we were over there on holiday. Uh, in this during this time, I'd been working in recruitment, even though I DJ'd and did art for fun as a hobby, mm. but it wasn't ever a career. And we was oh, so in 2010, I was uh, we were over there on holiday. I woke up with a cold sweat one morning, uh, and just said to, to Mandy, my wife, uh, I've got to give up work. I've had enough. It's killing me. I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm not a recruiter. I'm, I'll yeah. do something else in my life. I don't know what it is. We didn't have a lot of money in the bank at the time because we'd put it all back into the house we had. So we were just like, let's go travelling for a bit. We've got a little bit, it'll get us by. And then she suggested trying a summer in Ibiza. So we did in 2011. Wow. So I quit my job in the 2010. And in May 2011, we uh, I bought a van. I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought if I'd buy a van and take it to Ibiza, I can earn with it. <laughs> I had no, honestly, I had no idea what I was going to do. Yeah, yeah. I went over there and, uh, it, you know, it worked out all right. No way, so you actually drove the van to Ibiza. So we, we packed up our stuff that we needed to, to we rented somewhere for six months. A tiny little apartment in Figueretas, mm-hmm. really, really simple, um, little two-bedroom apartment. And I went over there with a van. I thought, well, 
I'm going to do this thing. <laughs> Once I got there, so I asked around, couldn't find, uh, work wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. I thought, hey, everyone, I want a man with a van in Ibiza. Um, but it turns out there's quite a few vans already. <laughs> there's already some vans on the island. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and, and I, I did a bit of a, a bit of a hippie thing. I went to um, Escabel's, you know, I looked mm-hmm. over, it's one of my favourite views on the island. And I just, when we, when we used to go there on holiday, we'd sit there and just go, how can we make it work? How can we... How can we live here? What, what, yeah. what do we have to do? You know, it turns out you just have to go and do it. It's, it's, it's as yeah. simple as that. But you don't realise that when you're you're trapped in your job and your career and your life and stuff. Anyway, so I sat on the edge of the the cliff at Esquibels and I spoke to the island, much much as you might speak to the universe. Now I'm very much into that kind of mm-hmm. thinking. But at the time I didn't didn't know that's what I was doing, and I, I, I guess I was talking to Tanit or whatever. And I just said, "All right, you've got me here. What do you need me for?" And literally the next day, because uh, I put the feelers out, a phone call came in from somebody saying. I've got this guy who's looking for a, for a roadie. Do you know how to set up DJ equipment? And I was like, yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a guy called Eric who who's one of the part owners of Void. So I ended up working for him, using my van to to, you, to, to move sound equipment around the island. A typical Ibethan labourer. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's what it was. Yeah, I was basically a labourer. I was just a pair of hands, just, just yeah. umping speakers and sound equipment about and occasionally being allowed to plug it in, you know? Yeah. No, too technical. How, t- how tough was that? To begin with, did you, did, you, did you look back on that and think those were tough times or were you just enjoying? Do you know what? Yeah, I mean, I'd had a very stressful kind of mid-management role in, in the UK. So anything that wasn't that was great. And I was prepared to give it my all. And, and we used to work some crazy hours. You know, we'd be, we'd be like setting up sound equipment for a wedding, perhaps. Then I'd be delivering some speakers to some kids that were renting a villa they wanted for that. Then we'd be going into... DC 10 to take out some big speakers at six in the morning that we were moving to uh, Sankey's because they had the void sound system at the time so it was kind of a mixture of those sort of things and it was just stupid long hours for the summer but I absolutely loved it I loved it because I just wasn't I wasn't doing what I was doing before I was and I was living in the beach and it was in the sun Um, and and it wasn't every day it was always kind of a bit sporadic there'd be like two or three days where you'd be flat out then you'd maybe have four days off or it was kind of, you know, sort of plenty of sort of downtime. And my wife actually, who before we moved to Ibiza, she used to travel around the world for H&M delivering training. Okay. Um, and she got a, 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 a little job in a, in a shop, uh, which she still works there now. She just works there three oh, no days way. a week in the winter. Yeah. In the summer, sorry. And then has yeah. the winter off. So she's still, she's still there now and just loves it. Yeah. So um, what are, so everyone's, uh, you know, I assume most people listening to this have been to Ibiza yeah. in the summer usually. Uh-huh. What are those winter kind of months like on the island? <sighs> it's just the best. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, the first year we went, we only did six months and we came back to the UK for six months. Um, and during that time we'd met some really nice people actually there was a Spanish bar at the bottom of the road we used to go to and one of the sister the sister of the bloke that owned the bar the Spanish friend a girl and her friend came over and stayed with us actually in London for a few mm-hmm. months which is really good yeah. um, and then we went back so the second year we couldn't find we, we so we went back the second year uh, in 2012 and we thought oh, we'd, we'd just do six months again rented a house out in London uh, but when we got there it, um, it, it, it was difficult to find somewhere for just six months so we just decided we'd stay and keep the people in the house. Yeah. Um, so we stayed for our first winter and uh, it was just magical. I just remember thinking, this is just brilliant. It, the weather was still pretty good. It was mild, a lot milder than it is in the UK. Um, it got cold at night when the sun went down, but there was just still loads of people on the island, but it was yeah. just a totally different vibe. Uh, and I'd heard how beautiful it was, but you really got to explore the island and yeah. really get yourself ingrained into the people of the of, the, of Ibiza. 
yeah. you know, it really helps if you want to sort of build a career there, I guess. Spend yeah, your time in winter. I suppose was then the thinking like I'm really going to ingratiate myself to to the community at large and you know learn Spanish. I think I like was that the okay? I've got to do this. Or? Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. 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 We, we we're still tr- we're still trying to learn Spanish now. My Spanish friends still give me uh, shit for it not being as good as they they'd like it, but. <laughs> It's better than a lot of my other mates that live there. Yeah. So I'm quite pleased with my level of Spanish. <laughs> my wife's better than I am. Yeah. So you're fully based on the island now as an entity. That's it. It's yeah. 100% this is yeah, going to be. We, yeah, we, we sold up and sold up a house here and, and put it over there, put an apartment there. And how how many different places have you lived on in the island? Are you settled where you are? Yeah, we, yeah we're settled now. Yeah, we've, yeah. We've, got, we've got an apartment in, in um, Santillaria overlooking the church and the sea. It's very nice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why not why not okay so uh, we were talking earlier before we put the mics on but um just want to go through um the djing as well as the artwork on the island kind of what came next after you being the laborer man with a van and semi-plan i, I guess um I, I even in the first year of doing the sound systems i took a like a small amount of records over with me in the hope that that i might get i might dj at a friend's party or something like that because i dj before in london as i said in bars and stuff so I, I had experience of it, but I never imagined it would be a career. So I took a, took a bunch of records over me and I got I got a couple of gigs and like there's a little bar down the road for me. In We were living in Salinas the second year we were here um, called La Salle, which is now Corrie Cancha. Uh, I started to, started to DJ in there and then I think I, then I started to then I DJed in Sands a couple of times. I went and saw Jason Ball that owned it at the time and just asked me if I could play a few records one lunchtime. He said, yeah, come down once a week if you like. Come and play. I think he paid me a burger and chips or something. Oh. Is that um, one of the main benefits of living on a v- in Ibiza as well? Would you say, like, you just say, "Oh, can I come and play?" Or you, yeah, you're around tomorrow yeah, pr- at lunchtime. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> that, that, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. everybody kind of does that. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of people that want to be DJs do do that. Mm. But I guess because I didn't, it wasn't like the be all and end all for me. And I, I know, it, like, you do get a lot of people that are over there quite desperate to do it, yeah. and they're really pushy about it. And, and you, you know, if anybody wants to be a DJ, you have to, you got to make it happen, haven't you? So. Yeah. You, you go about it any way you can, but because I never considered it would be a career or something that I desperately wanted to do, because I kind of had a bit of, I'd started a career, I thought I was going to do sound systems all my life over there. <laughs> um, I wasn't desperate about it, so I suppose, I suppose when I went to people and just said, oh, can I play a few records? They were just like, yeah, why not? They could see that I wasn't desperate for it. Yeah. I don't know, I'm, I'm, that's the only thing I can, I can assume that kind of helped me in a way. Yeah. So so the second year I was over, um, when, we, when we did our first winter there, I decided to start drawing again. I thought I was going to get back into my, my artwork because I had studied art years ago. I uh, did a foundation course in art and then um, dropped out after I had my son or, or just, just before I had my son and ended up doing recruitment. So um, I rediscovered my art the second, the first winter we was over, which is 2012. And I, it was our wedding anniversary and we didn't have a lot of money. So I decided I would draw a card for my wife and it, it was a, made up of a sugar skull with stuff in it that was re- relevant to our lives. And that's, then I, I drew that and it was quite nice and she loved it. And then I, I drew another one, uh, just for me really, just just for the sake of doing it. And a friend of mine saw it and said, oh, that's great. Yeah. Can you blow that up for me? And I was like, oh, am I going to do that? Okay, so, because he, he, you know, he basically commissioned me to make one for his wall. Mm. Um, so I, I had to get a computer software because I needed to, to redraw it on a computer so that when I blew it up, the, the quality wouldn't, yeah. booze so that kind of started my digital art career really and then I designed some t-shirts that winter as well which I had made in Bali the following the following summer I sold them sold them in Ibiza and then just cash in hand 
There's no money for tax managers listening into it. <laughs> um, okay, so I started to draw again, and then um, I got more into the kind of digital art stuff, and then I designed a... Was that the yeah, I think I designed a smiley I did, and then I got involved with Last Night a DJ Save My Life charity. Yeah. They, they started to saw that I was, see that I was doing art and started to sell prints and stuff. Uh, and by the end of that by the end of that year, I was over here in the Houses of Parliament selling art alongside Banksy and Inky and stuff like that. It was, it was really wow. it was a really quick yeah <laughs> sort of rise. I don't know how it <laughs> happened really, but just I guess right time, right place, and what have you. And uh, people in Ibiza sort of liked what I was doing. And you know, I was starting to get commissions for stuff. And yeah. so I decided to start making prints, and I made scarves and T-shirts and stuff like that. Yeah, and people kind of liked it. So that happened quite quickly. And at the same time as that happened, I was DJing for fun. I was DJing at a party uh, in the winter. My mate Gary's. It was his birthday. I might have been his thirtieth or fortieth. Anyway, I was DJing at his party, and uh, Vaughan Vaughan Africa, who used to run the Funky Room, still still is involved in the Funky Room on a Saturday night uh, in Pasha, spotted me and asked me if I would do a bit of covering for him for when when um, Pippi or Willie Graff weren't playing. Well, yeah. So when, when they weren't available. Uh, so I, what I, music I were you playing? Uh, so then I was playing Funk and Soul, really, because mm. it was a Funky Room. Um, with a little bit of sort of soulful house, and I remember and I did that for the first time with Pippi, and it wasn't it wasn't as good as an experience as I hoped it would be. Oh really? No, I thought it'd be great. This is my moment, you know, and, and uh, it, it, it didn't quite go as well as I thought. Um, but he taught me a very very valuable lesson. He was, you know, because I was playing like these original vinyls and stuff, and some of the quality wasn't as good, and it's very 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 difficult to mix and to transition. Yeah. Some of those some of those tunes, and he just he kind of got me on got me into edits. He sort of gave me a bit yep. of word, gave me a really good bit of word good bit of advice and saying you know get into edits they're in time you can mix with them and that kind of stuff yeah and that kind of sort of set me down that path it's a rabbit hole isn't it once yeah. you discover that <laughs> it is and then i kind of you know because it, it went when i started to dj in ibiza i had no intention of djing really professionally as i said and i had no intention of being a house dj because i thought when i did start to go get pulled in i thought well there's no point doing house everybody and his mum's doing house yeah. there weren't that many soul and funk djs or funk yeah. soul djs uh, so it, it felt like we were, i was a bit of a novelty so therefore i might get a bit of work doing that because i love doing that and that's yeah. Kind of what happened, really. It did, it did, it did me well. Yeah. But then I got back into my house music again, which I was, which I always listened to and danced to and all the rest of it. Yeah. I just didn't think I'd ever be playing again. Okay. And um, so yeah, obviously DJing alongside Pippi, you know, that's mildly terrifying, I'd imagine as well. Kind yeah, of it was. Yeah, the first that. few times it really was actually. Yeah. yeah and yeah. He, he gave no quarter. <laughs> really? <laughs> Should we say? He, you know, I get on well with him now, of course. Yeah. But um, but at the time he was a bit wary of me, I think. And he probably thought, what a shit DJ this guy is. But because, you know, because my mixing wasn't great at the time. Mm. Some would argue it's not great now, but, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm joking, I hope. Um, but uh, it was difficult at first, uh, yes. But, but once I got into the, the edit side, it, it became easier. Mm. And also, that, that's, so the same year that that happened, that I got asked to do Pasha. Um, another guy who's become a really good friend of mine, Bob Masters, was over on the island in the, in the May time. And some friends of ours had a bar called Hidden. Um, Chris and Amanda the bar called Hidden up in the north and I'd DJ'd a few times at their daytime events you know mm. they had like Easter parties and stuff like that and they were doing a, a night with Ashley Beadle was coming over to, to who was a really good friend of theirs was going to play that afternoon and they asked me if I wanted to play alongside him I was like yeah of course amazing yeah. he's a legend yeah. uh, and he became a friend actually he's, he's a good mate now so uh, another guy called Bob Masters spotted me playing that day and asked me if I wanted to go and play on the boat for his booth of Soul Week which I did and then got asked to come back and do the fourth in the year after so Pasha and Soul Week happened more or less at the same time yeah which would have been 2013 or 2012 or 13 it would have been 13 yeah and then in 2014 you had the epiphany 
while talking to some other fellow DJs. Yeah. About Melonbomb. Melon Bomb. So Melonbomb was born a year, yeah, in November 2014. We were at a, uh, a wine event. Um, where they were having food at a place on, called, on Ibiza in Ibiza yeah, yeah called Vino & Co uh, it's yeah. a very famous wine shop um, and we know the guys that run it really well they're really good friends of ours Dutch family called the Hammer Smiles mm. um, own that place uh, and I'd met actually Paul Reynolds mum and dad me and Mandy had met them in there drinking wine so we sort of became mates of them because we met them a few times and they used to, used to say to me oh do you, do you know Paul Reynolds our son and he's, he's doing well in Ushuaia and stuff and I, I'd say to him no do you know what I keep hearing about this guy and I'm sure we'll, we'll meet, our pals will meet but we haven't yet so anyway, this, this, this wine event happened not long after that. And he was there with his missus. And Ben Santiago was also there with Laura. Yeah. And I'd just been asked to do Pasha on New Year's Eve. So it was a bit, a bit of a big break for me. Those guys had already, were already doing really well themselves. And I'd had a few drinks and I, I, I said to them both, I've got a great idea. Let's get together. When should we, can we have a meeting next week? And we, we decided we'd meet on Tuesday. And afterwards, Ben sort of told me that he, he spoke to Paul and he said, who is this guy? Should we, do you think we should speak to him? And, and Paul was like, yeah, yeah, let's give him a go. Let's, let's hear what he's got to say. Yeah. Um, and I woke up on the, on the Saturday morning because it was, on, it was on a Friday the first when I, when I made the suggestion and I said to, to Mandy I've got a meeting with Paul Reynolds and Ben Santiago about this really good idea and I've got no idea what it's going to be <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a clue but Glitterbox had just started that season in Boom and I'd been along to it and really enjoyed it and I thought we could do uh, it, it was like the resurgence of that more kind of soulful mm. scene I guess yeah. you know the disco had come back into house and and fair play to them glitterbox totally nailed it you know they 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 stay kind of were part of that scene coming that re-emerging scene of nostalgic yeah. kind of more soulful it's sounds the, the edits how, you could argue kind of invented yeah, that as well yeah pro- yeah that's yeah. it yeah you're probably probably right actually yeah the edits are, and, and and it kind of brought that it brought singing back into house didn't yeah. it really you yeah. know that soulful kind of yeah. vocal stuff and and, and then you know the, the music back to the, what was a really strong tech house scene at the time. Yeah. So I, I guess we just decided to do something along those lines, and that's how Melonbomb was formed. And then we, I managed. I, I'd also played at Pikes for a friend's wedding that October, so just before we had the meeting. Um, so I was able to convince, and, and then they liked me, and they asked me to come back and play at Halloween. So I, I, I knew that Pikes did winter parties. So before we even had the name Melonbomb, or we knew what we were going to do. Not long after our first meeting. I'd managed to speak to Pikes and they gave us a party in February. They gave us a date. Uh, and then we had a meeting with Paul and Ben. I think it was our second meeting in January, maybe, or February. No, it was January. And I brought a piece of artwork along, which was the now, I don't know if you've ever seen the Melon Bomb logo. It's yeah. the, 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 the bomb and the face and the beard. And the... So I brought that along to the meeting and it, it, I designed it for a, as an art piece to sell that winter I, alongside other two other pieces of art. And they, they, the other ones sold really well, but nobody was, was interested in buying that melon bomb design. And I was really upset because it was my favourite piece of design at the time. <laughs> so I brought it along to the meeting. I said to the guys, should we use this? And they were just like, yeah, that's great. Uh, so what should we call it? Melon head, melon disco, melon, oh, melon bomb. And that's where the name was, was, uh, was formed. So yeah. we had the date in Pikes. We had the name. Uh, and we did our first party. Paul was unavailable. I think he might have had a gig in the UK. So me and Ben did it mm. um, with, who else did we use? Oh, uh, Paulette, DJ Paulette. Yeah. And about 40 people turned up by about half past two, three o'clock. It was, em- it was empty and we were just, oh, well, we, we had a go. Yeah. Can't see that happening again. But Pikes were good enough to give us one more date. So Pikes gave us a second date and it was a, it was our friend's, Nick Clayton's big birthday. And he double booked it. And he'd, he'd booked Joe Mills to play because he wanted more of a kind of DC-10 sound because she was one of the old DC-10 DJs, wasn't she? Mm. And, and, uh, and Pikes had also promised it to us. So we kind of got together and combined it and Joe Mills played for us and played a more disco kind of soulful sound, actually, which was really good. And that was our second Melanbon party. But, but 
I, because it was his birthday, a load of people came down, <laughs> and then people kind of saw us and thought, "Oh, this is good." And it, and and so Pike sort of recognised it as well. Yeah. And then gave us. They were just giving us at that point more or less a party at a time, but mm. we ended up kind of doing more or less. I think from May to September, yeah. maybe October once a month. Yeah. And that was our first kind of year at Pikes. Yeah. And Melbourne was born. And, and actually, we had a, the, the, it, it went okay. They had other things going on as well. Car wash were there, and there was a few other parties that was uh, that, they, that they had. Uh, but by the end of it, we did we did our closing party actually. Yeah, the first year mm. at the end of October, and about five six hundred people came, and we were just right. like, wow, yeah, we were onto something here. Yeah. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You kind of mentioned there was like Halloween at Pikes, uh, you know, your first gig there was February and then it went into March you know these are all kind of like out of season in that way what are the you know you mentioned the island is really good when you're living there to in the winter time the out of season time but there's still events going on what what are the crowd like is there a different vibe in those parties no they're all house lovers they all went there to follow house music and to follow the you know I always call the beats and the pills you know Uh, so they're all into that sound mm. pretty much everybody there loves it you know it's just it's why we're there really yeah and, and then we discovered how beautiful the island was um so there's a difference and it. it's a slightly different personnel it's not people that are on holiday but even the people that go on holiday are regulars they know they know what's what they understand yeah. the music they know about the clubs you know it just is the best crowd to play to it was predominantly a uk crowd i guess and that whole kind of sound uh still is to an extent it seems to be more of a kind of uk we seem to love our soul more perhaps than say the Europeans do yeah. um, but it's got a bit more uh, mixed now as well. we get, we've got quite, got a lot, uh, quite a few Dutch people come down uh, and Italians and you know, Germans and Spanish come too but it's still probably predominantly English Yeah, I also have to say so not, not long after we did our second party um, I'd started working with uh, Juan Corby mm-hmm. um, who um, is the fourth Melon Bomber um, now when we, we did an edits uh, track together um, which which we put out. I did the artwork for it and put it out on vinyl. And I think Paul had started to do an edit with him as well. We got a gig in. I've got unbelievably we've got our first gig in space, like in May, wow. um, through Paul Reynolds because Paul was was a regular there, um, and he managed us to get got us on a, a Wednesday night or something. I can't even remember whose night it was that we were playing at, but we, we were playing on the was it on the roof or the terrace? Yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah, that yeah. but it did. Uh, and and um, Ben wasn't available, so. Corby, who we'd been working with, was available, and we said, "Oh, do you fancy coming to play?" He was like, "Yeah, great." 
and after that night we were just like great that's our fourth fourth member then and yeah. that, that, that was the four Mellon Bombers perfect <laughs> Um, and so, what can people what can people expect? What is the full Melon Bomb experience? You, you, you know, you play at different places on, yep. on in Ibiza. Mm-hmm. Um, do you tailor your sound to the different environments, or are you always like we've we've got a following, we've got a sound that the expectation is the crowd want to hear this, or do you think oh I've got to play a different sound to a Pasha crowd than a, to a Pikes crowd? Yeah, a bit. You do. You do. We do tend to do that, and we we tend to think a lot about what we're going to play, and it's always up for discussion. And it's something that we talk about all the time: our sound, mm. and and what's what's right and what's not for Men and Bomb and for the crowd. And if we're playing the the place where we play, probably the truest form, what you know, where we can be a little bit more underground, I guess, is when we're playing at Pikes. That's our home. It always has been, and we can we can really play our sound there. And it's a and it's a mixture of deep soulful funky disco um a little bit of tech but not never for more than two or three tracks we never play you know a whole set of it, it but then we, but we'll mix in and out of that stuff you know a little bit of acid but it all goes but it's all it's always got a bit of soul to it i suppose is is how we would describe it um whether it's a soulful vocal or a, or a piano loop or whatever it might be so it's always it's rooted in a in a kind of soulful disco sound i suppose yeah um but you know, there's, it, it, and it it moves and evolves, um, but it's still still got that that that's the kind of number one element to it. And it uh, and and if we're playing at Glitterbox, for instance, we might play slightly different to Pikes because it's you're playing in in that kind of Glitterbox crowd, I suppose, which expect more of the disco. So we might play a bit more disco there than we play, but we still put a few chunky ones in there as well, yeah. and it, it kind of works. But yeah. you do tailor it a bit, yeah. Yeah, and obviously with four of you behind the decks, how does that kind of work between the between each other between yourselves yeah we don't uh often play all four of us together mm. um, although that has happened quite a bit this season at um glitterbox so when we play at bikes we usually play um one at a time so yep. we usually get an hour set each yeah um or sometimes we'll, we'll double up and do back to back and then often at the, at the end of the night we've we'll all jump on and just put a record on or whatever and it's quite fun you know for the last hour or something and, and include our guests might do that too because we often have, we have guests when we play at bikes yeah um but when we play at Glitterbox, we've played all four of us and it kind of works occasionally sometimes it goes off in weird directions and we've decided the, towards the end of this year that next year if we do it we'll probably do it in pairs an hour at a time so all four of us might be there but right. we'll pair off and change the pairs and, that, and we did that towards the end of the season and it worked really it worked really really well or apart from the closing we just all jumped on and it was just it was mad um, but yeah so that that's kind of how that works so we and when we go out and dj when we go off the island for instance it's usually in pairs um yeah. it's very rare that all four of us go together yeah so it's sometimes singular but we if we can get it it's, it's pairs yeah somewhere like pikes i suppose they can't get all four of you behind the decks at the same no, time no no we try though <laughs> <laughs> we've had a go <laughs> yeah um and what's uh um what your do you trust each other's tastes in terms of selecting music and do you have um do you often hear something that once one of the other guys has played and been like oh you know what's that or i wish i had that or do you run things by each other how does how does it kind of work in terms of music selection between yourselves everything you've just said there kind of happens really there's, <laughs> there'll be times where we just, oh that is brilliant and we're like be nicking each other's records and stuff and <laughs> like playing it but we, we we do try to get a and we keep trying to do this and it works for a while we're trying to get a like a library together 
mm. tunes that we all like and can put in together and we can dip from, especially when we're going, up, going away to play. Um, and there are times, yeah, of course, when one of us plays something the other one's a bit dubious about because tastes are different and there's four yeah. of you. Yeah. Um, and it, it is, it's just something we discuss a lot and, you know, um, it's something, sometimes it can not cause friction, but it can certainly sort of like, oh, I don't like this one, I'll, you know, but generally we've got a sound, you know, and, and, yeah. and that sound works and we've got a, we've got an identity that sort of people know us for. Yeah. And who's the best DJ out of all Me. of you? <laughs> Obviously. No, I mean, look, you know, everyone's, everyone's, everyone's got their own I don't expect you to that. I would answer that one. No, everyone probably thinks it's themselves. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, like, no, back, back to that, I mean, like, for instance, uh, Juan's really, like, technically good. He's really good at mixing and, uh, uh, spin backs and he does little tricks and stuff and he's really cool he's really good at that sort of stuff Paul's just like got this really you know uh, what do you call it seamless way of mixing tracks together with FX and Paul, Ben's got his own style he's very seamless we, we, all, we all got our own ways of doing it you know? um, and you mentioned Pikes you see Pikes is like your home yeah um, and we've spoken to Dawn Hindle on this podcast as well and it, like obviously she talks about the just the rock and roll history of that place handled yeah. by Tony Pike is a lot of kind of ghosts that stalk those corridors and a lot of history. Yeah. Um, what does the place mean to you as a collective and personally? Do you is it is it a real Ibiza moment to have played there and exist there? Yeah, yeah. we all absolutely love it. It's our number one venue for us to play on the island. Um, it's just brilliant. It's just so cool, you know. The, the dance floor is quite small. It'd be nice if perhaps if that was bigger, but mm. it just is what it is. You know, Harvey plays there and people like Seth Trucks will play there and tons of really, really cool people still play there. It's it's just brilliant. It's just got, it's just, there's nowhere like it on the island. It's, it feels real. It's got that, as you say, that kind of rock and roll history to it. it it's, it's a bit, it's just, it's a beautiful venue. It's just magical. We just love it. Awesome. Um, and yeah, like you mentioned, yeah, Freddie's the space is very small, very intimate. Yeah. Uh, what have been kind of some standout moments for you from playing in there? And are there any moments where it's all gone off and you're like, this is this is kind of a memorable one for me in terms of moments and tracks and things like that you've been playing? I'll tell you what, too many to mention, honestly. I, I have... Uh, at least once or twice a year I'm in there and I played a set and I just think God, that's the best set I've ever played and everybody loves it and it's just I don't know I can't think of one moment or that, that was specifically better than any others really I just I feel so at home there it feels like playing in your own front room it's really weird mm. you know it just feels like you're playing to your family it's just it's, it's a lovely experience playing yeah there. Yeah, and uh, you do you often record a lot of your sets? <laughs> do you yeah. like listening back to them? Do you know what? It's weird. We, we we do occasionally record our sets, and it's something we're guilty of not doing enough of. And I think this year, next season, we're going to do a bit more of it. We have recorded sets there. But it's interesting. When you do those kind of live sets, for us, we're all very pernickety about listening to stuff back and protecting our image and stuff yeah. and so we're never we're never satisfied with with how they sound as a as a as a listening experience as they do when you're experiencing a club yeah if you're doing a mix at home to be released as a mix you do it completely differently you yeah know? yeah when you're in there you're sort of knocking things out and you're dropping stuff and you're you're using effects and you're doing it to get a crowd going i suppose so uh yeah we, we but we are intending to do some next year. <laughs> More than we've done this year anyway. And um, where else in the world do you guys kind of play? Um, have you taken the Melbourne experience to Glastonbury? Yeah, we played at Glastonbury on the blue stage at Silver Haze 
a few years ago. That was that was incredible. It was on the Thursday night, um, and uh, basically on Thursday night at Glastonbury, there's nothing going on, mm. but everybody's there because mm-hmm. they turn up on Wednesday and Thursday, don't they? Uh, if you've been before, and, yeah. and so people are just gagging for something to do. Yeah, uh, and I think Radio One were on until ten uh, in Silver Haze, and that stopped. And our set started at ten, uh, and then after us it was Colshan and um, Seth Troxler. So literally, they everybody had nowhere to go but the blue stage, and they came, and there was a sea of just thousands in front. It was the biggest crowd I've ever played to, probably about seven thousand people. Yeah, felt like anyway, uh, and that was just that was. That was pure magic. Yeah, yeah. There any plans to go back? If they'll have us, yeah, we were hoping they'll invite us back again. <laughs> uh, yeah, if the, if they want us back, we'll be there in a flesh. Yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah. You know, it's an incredible place to play. And I suppose that's the that's a huge difference between a small intimate space like Pikes and a massive you know sea of people in yeah. a festival. Is there any preference in terms of what you prefer playing to? Um, I suppose we like the kind of small intimate intimacy of places like pikes which is also why when we play at uh glitterbox at high we love the toilets because it's that similar thing low ceiling and it just goes off in there doesn't it it's, yeah it's that kind of real intimacy so that's kind of what we prefer but it's also nice to play a big room yeah it's great to, to you know we've played we've played the main room in, in high quite a few times uh, and as you say you know we, we play festivals and stuff like that so yeah, it's good yeah but, but i think intimacy is just brilliant it's just it's like I don't know. It just seems to work with our sound more. I think. Yeah, and just the like everyone elevates each other in those small spaces, yeah. don't they? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And where else in the world have you played that is uh, Sri Lanka? Um, been out like good, bad, ugly, amazing out there. What's uh, well? I'm not going to say. I'm not going to. We 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 play all kinds of places. Um, yeah. You know, we go to the slopes. We played in Verbier, and we played in uh, Morzine in in France. We played those quite regularly, which is which is lovely to do, especially our prey ski is brilliant. I love playing our prey ski. Uh, we've played in some dingy little clubs in in England. We've played some bars. We've played all sorts of places, uh, and they're all you know they're, they're all great really. We've, mm. We're very lucky to be able to do that. Uh, we're, we're playing with Ministry of Sound. We've done that quite a few times. Um, uh, we're playing the Print Works at, uh, New Year's Eve this year. Two of the guys are going over for that Paul and one. So yeah, everywhere. Amazing. I say everywhere. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so I want to talk about like chapter um, yep. <clears throat> and your artwork. Obviously, you're extremely busy doing that as well. Um, is it a welcome diversion from music, like kind of your art and your prints and that t-shirt side of things? Or? Yeah, it kind of feels like it goes together, really, because it's 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 very much uh, a, a creative process, which is something I missed while I was doing recruitment, knowing that I was a creative person. <laughs> I was a very, very frustrated creative person when I was working in that industry. Yeah. So when I got to Ibiza and it was all unleashed again, it, it felt just so right. So, um, yeah, uh, welcome to distraction. I mean, yeah, I guess it is really. It's just it's it's just being creative, isn't it? It's, and I love being creative. And um, where can any of our listeners buy any of your stuff? Uh, at the moment, you could buy it on my website, www.chapter-art.com. Uh, we can buy art prints. Um, so yeah, so you can get all your stuff online. Um, just to just kind of circle back there, just a second. You mentioned kind of recruitment and being that super creative person, but in a non-creative role. Yeah. Um, are you still kind of in touch with anyone from that life that you had back then? Do they see you now and they're like, "Wow, this is like a talisman of uh, someone who's given it all up and doing." you know everything that you ever wanted to do or yeah I, I, I stay in touch with one or two people but one in particular a guy called Daryl Daryl who used to work for me who's now 
taken my old role in recruitment and gone further beyond it and he's, he's doing really really well now um, and he comes over to Ibiza quite a bit and, and actually we went over for his wedding uh, uh, this year so yeah I still, I still stay in contact with him and then I met actually my old boss at his wedding and stuff and they were quite interested in what I'm doing I so, bet yeah. they were. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, and so you're pretty ensconced in the Ibiza scene, house music, all that culture side of things. Um, what are your thoughts on um, the state of the house music scene in general, maybe seen from an Ibiza perspective in terms of, um, do you think it's gone very much one way in terms of VIP culture and these big shiny clubs or do you think that's places like Pikes and things like that are making a bit more of a comeback in terms of these smaller esoteric um, funky little little more intimate things what's your feeling on the yeah, difference um, between the, the two? The, yeah it, it, there is definitely more of a VIP culture now than there was previously um, but it's not for everybody um, and I've never sat at a table in a club um in a VIP lounge. I've maybe visited one to say hello to somebody that was a set at one, but I've never spent a night there uh, in all my life, in all my years of clubbing in Ibiza, and I don't think I ever will, really. And uh, uh, it's for it's for, it's for for a different type of pe- uh, person, I guess, than, than the true clubbers. Um, but it's there, it's not going anywhere, and it'll probably continue to be there. I think it's something that's come, born in America and it was adopted yeah. once they saw the club, once the club saw they could make a lot of money out of it. And it helps them to be able to bring certain um, acts and stuff over because they've got more money so you know you can look at it that way too um, it, it, it is a thing it's not the end of clubbing um, there's plenty of great experiences to be had and it's not always found in the big clubs as you just said yes places like Pikes I mean I know that they've had their best year ever in 2019 uh, and I've got some very very cool things going on there so um, it's still very much alive and kicking and places like DC10 and mm-hmm you know, underground and all those places that they're really, really keeping it real. And even some of the certain nights at high and, and Pasha and stuff, it's not all, it's not all, uh, it's not all kind of EDM and um, reg- reggaeton, reg- I can't remember if it's reggaeton or reggaeton. <laughs> it's, not, it's not all that, although that is there, that exists, mm. that coexists. Mm-hmm. But even when we were going years ago, there were, there were some strange nights on and stuff. It's, it's always been there. I think, I think you just got to focus on how great the greatness is there. And there's plenty of really good stuff there. It's still the Mecca for me. Yeah. Yeah, and so what have you got coming up in 2020 that you're excited about? Yeah, so we've we've got our regular uh, season back at Pikes, which is once a month. We will be. And when? What is that? A certain day it's on? It's usually a. Well, it's always Friday, and usually the first or second Friday uh, of each month, mm-hmm. um, starting in May and finishing in October. We'll be doing two at Tanit. We do a, a beach party in um, Good Friday, which we always do which is really, really, really good party. Everybody's ready for something by then um, on the island. And then we also do a September party there, which I think this year is in, 2000, in 2020 is 21st or 22nd of September. Um, we will also be playing at Glitterbox, I think 10 times as, as the dates we've been offered. And we'll be playing at Pasha, I think IMS week. We have a night there, oh, no which is good. Yeah. Uh, and then there'll be other bits and pieces. But that, that'll probably be us in Ibiza then with our dates there and then yeah uh, various other uh, festivals and stuff we're doing Sunsy Beat in 2020 um, and there's a few other things we've been talked about with, that we're going to be involved with cool and what would you is there anything that you guys as Melon Bomb kind of haven't done yet that you really want to do yeah uh, more more festivals I suppose would be good mm. um, but that, that's starting to happen 
something we haven't done that we'd love to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, playing Bergen, I suppose, in, <laughs> in Berlin would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess we just want to continue to grow as a brand and 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 and, and make more, you know, get get to more people, really reach more people. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Do you know it'd be nice to do an essential mix would be good, perhaps on radio, on the radio, on radio one. That'd yeah. be nice to get offered to do that. I think that'd be good. Uh, we haven't done a boiler room yet, so I suppose that would also be good. I'm hoping those things will happen soon. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Um, and we certainly are looking to get music out, um, which is something that we haven't done enough of as, as Melon Bomb, and we are working on that at the moment to to try and get some Melon Bomb music out. We, we're currently um, putting stuff together for that, so hopefully. By the time this goes out, there could be some Melbourne music uh, available. I mean, we've we've done some bits and pieces, but um, mostly edits and stuff like that that we've we've done. Yeah, so it'd be like original stuff that you'd be dreaming, like sample based, sample based, yeah. but original kind yeah. of. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't have original music. sample music. <laughs> uh, okay, so we're kind of just coming up to the hour mark, which is great. Um, and so the last kind of bit will just just be talking about the tracks that you've chosen. So okay. Um, so yeah, to kind of wrap it up, um, what we always do with our guests is we get everyone to pick five tracks for a Spotify playlist that we're doing okay. um, called The Perfect Playlist and people can just kind of put it on, put it on shuffle. There's already loads of tracks in there that are um, good, bad, crazy, really strange um, just because of the choices that we ask for. So there's a real kind of breadth of, of genres and choices, which is all good. Um, and we always ask uh, Catalyst, Floor Filler, Sunset, A Tearjerker and The Last Tune. You've been kind enough to give us your choices up front. So um, we obviously talked about, um, you know, your first exposure to house music and kind of where it all started for you. So in terms of electronic music, what were the tracks that got you into repetitive beats initially? Yeah, so the, my first uh, big electronic track that kind of blew my mind when I was when I was young was... Uh, was was New Order's Blue Monday? I just it just it was incredible that the sound they were making. I mean, obviously there were there were there'd already been um, Kraftwerk had, had done similar kind of stuff, and the whole kind of new romantic scene was linked to the electronic scene. But but Blue Monday had a bit of an edge to it. It was driving, as we all know. It's just it's just an absolute classic, and it yeah. just it just totally turned me on to that kind of music. But when I, a, a, a couple of years after that, another big track because I'd, I'd sort of got into hip hop and electro was uh african mambata renegade to funk uh again that was just a, a you know sort of timeless classic um which is again blew my mind and the other thing i liked about that album uh or that that uh, 12 inch at the time was the artwork on the cover i don't know if you if you remember what it looks like but it's a picture of the f- them all coming by bursting through all, 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 all drawn in like a a comic book style right yeah which is I kind of picture that. is yeah. even in the influence of the artwork i do now you know my artwork can be a little bit sort of comic book looking um, and that was that was a it was it wasn't just the music it was the artwork as well just both of them blew my mind yeah I, that whole kind of electro um, scene was, we did a interview podcast with um, Greg Wilson okay yeah and talking about that whole kind of it wasn't like Motown stopped and then dance music started there was a whole kind of thing between the two in terms of repetitive beats and you know he was kind of singing the the, you know, the praises of electro and really pushing yeah. that sound during that period and yeah. and a lot of um, interviews and podcasts that i listen to other other ones um the amount of djs and people that talk about the electro street sounds albums yeah. if you ever owned those I, yeah i did those own were. them and a few years later uh, i managed i did a bit of design work from believe it or not did some mm. graphic design for them for when they kind of re-released stuff the second time around yeah so yeah and i met morgan Kahn and stuff yeah the, amazing the, 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 the street sounds but obviously when i was a kid that was absolutely that was a that was a music that was a backdrop to our 
Oh, youth, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so a floor filler. Obviously, we're not going to nail you down to the... You've only got one floor filler, but yeah, uh, yeah. What, what was your choice today? <laughs> today, my floor filler is Sun Kids Rise Up. And mm. a good friend of mine, Ricardo Porteous, actually reminded me of how good that track was when we were DJing, practicing around his house on some vinyl a few years back. And uh, and he, he pulled this one out and said uh, he'd heard Eric Murillo play it in Passion. It blew his head. And it just, you know, we'd, we'd been up all night on doing things and... <laughs> And I just remember thinking, this is brilliant. So ever since then, I've, I've, I've kind of, wherever I can, I try and get it into my into my set. Yeah. Um, not, not all the time, because, you know, don't play the same track all the time. But occasionally, I, when I do play, it never fails to work. And it uh, never fails to, uh, yeah, never fails to work. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily that people know it, because it's not the most famous of, of house tracks. But it's just got something about it that just everybody just gets into, even if they've never heard it before. It's just very gospel and uplifting yeah. and powerful. Yeah, and there's a real kind of rich vein of gospel house kind of yeah. currently almost it seems to be making. A yeah, real well, kind of it's impact. it's yeah, it sort of comes and goes, but it's always there in it. Yeah, that kind of gospel sound. I guess that's whole part of the, the whole religious experience you have, isn't it? When you yeah. when you go to a club and drop an E and <laughs> first hear that kind of music when the angels from above. Um, exactly. Yeah. So a sunsetter soundtrack, a perfect sunset. Massive Attack, Hymn of the Big Wheel mm. off, off of Blue Lines, which yeah. to me is still the best ever dance album that you can't dance to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and and that, just Horace Andy's haunting vocal on it mm. and just the words and it just, it makes me feel emotional. And when I first started playing at LaSalle, uh, which when, when I first started playing in Ibiza, um, I'd always play that as the sun was going down. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I was very happy when you sent me through the choices and that was one of them. Oh. I, I love that album. Oh. Um, Best. Yeah. Uh, okay. So a tearjerker. I've got two. Um, one of them is, and they're not it's not because they're sad songs, but they're just emotional songs. One is John Holt, "Help Me Make It Through the Night," and it's it's one of my mum's favourites as well, and my brother's. Um, and my mum's still with us, which is great. So, but but whenever it comes on, we always uh, have a little have a little dance in the family to that track. And actually, we went to see John Holt at Brixton Academy. Me, my mum, and my brother. Um, about a year before he died. So it's, it's even more poignant now. It's just a just a firm family favourite, you know. Yeah. Uh, even my dad's not into reggae so much, but even he likes it. And then another <laughs> one the is one? Primal Scream Come Together. Mm. And it's just because it was our our wedding song when we when we walked down the aisle oh, after getting the aisle. married. Yeah, we, 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 had, we had that played. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it just brings back happy memories of that. Yeah, that Andy Weatherall production. Scream Delica is like oh. that one of those other albums that you, could, you can't really dance to it. A couple of dancier ones on it. But yeah, it's one of those ones. It's just an incredible piece. Yeah. Also one of my favourite albums. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a last tune. Finish this off. Crowd are asking for one more. Okay. Um, and I've, I've put down St. Etienne, Only Love Can Break Your Heart. And only because at our closing party in October 2019, that was my. I, I was given the uh, the honour of playing the last track of the night, and uh, we don't always want to play something housey. We or you know we we'll play all kinds of things, mm. um, Bob Marley, anything, just something just that the crowd would just you know surprise them a little bit. Yeah. Um, and we'd be playing house music all night and disco and stuff. So I played that. It's very much a down tempo, and everyone loved it. It was just really really nice experience. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, also that track was. Um, that album we used to listen to on come downs after being clubbing all night in London. <laughs> we come back and listen to that St. Etienne album. Uh, so it's always been a, a favourite of mine. Yeah, it's that real W Andy Weatherall again, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Andy's so, there again. So good. Um, and yeah, so our final question is always we are house culture, you are part of the house culture. Um, what does this scene that you're involved with kind of mean to you as a whole and what's it kind of brought to you in your life? Um, Sum it up. just gives you a warm, happy 
togetherness feeling. Everyone connects. It's even if you aren't in, aren't on anything, it reminds you of when you were on something. It it just takes you back to a time where we're just all like united on the dance floor. You know, it killed football violence, didn't it? it? It sort of it just brought us all together in a time where we were very much not together. And uh, I think lessons could be learned right now. So uh, yeah, let's get back to house music, kids. <laughs> Let's all love each other on the dance floor. That is the perfect place to finish on, I think, with a final thought. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. House culture. So, how far into your backpacking are you right now? That was great, wasn't it? There's a guy that's living proof that asking the universe or even Tanit to bring goodness into your life can open the doorway to your dreams. Thanks, Scott, for an inspiring chat and an extremely candid interview there right from the off. I can't wait to get melon bombed on a future dance floor somewhere. As I said at the top of this episode, pretty much all dates discussed in here are in a state of flux. So if you're looking to catch Scott and the guys on a dance floor somewhere, please check before you book anything. And if you can't wait, you can check out their Wicked When Life Gives You Melons mixes currently ripping up SoundCloud. And if it's more sick beats you're after, you can find all of the tracks we rapped about on our Spotify playlist. Just open up your player, search for House Culture Perfect Playlist, and you'll be presented with a plethora of tunes that feature sounds from every corner of this thing we call house, all chosen by our podcast guests, past and present. Once you've followed the Perfect Playlist on Spotify, please support this podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing, by leaving us a rating or a review on Apple. This is really important and will help us continue to create these episodes we hope you love listening to. They could also get you a shout out on a future one as well. Which leads me to say a huge thank you to the person who goes by the name of Luca Duca, who reviewed us on Apple saying that our eclectic mix of dance music heavyweights is by far the best pod in its genre. Wow. High praise indeed. Thanks for taking the time to write something so complimentary and make sure you spread the word of house culture. Speaking of which, make sure you hit up our Instagram feed at housecultureNet or follow the hashtag TrueHouseCulture and you'll be kept informed of all the parties that are currently happening in people's homes across the world. I don't know about you, but I'm absolutely itching to hit the club soon. Soon. And finally, if you want to reach out to me, Matt Rouse, you can do it directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you next time. House Culture. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.